Where are we going? Dunkirk. There's no hiding from this sun. We have a job to do. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the inaugural edition of the Dark Ops Provcast, the podcast where Providence goes to the movies. I'm your host, Mark Levecki. I am the managing editor of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. And I am here with Tommy Shepard, a naval historian. Say hi, Tommy. Hey, Mark. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Tell us something about yourself. Well, I'm a naval historian by training, although Dunkirk is slightly outside of my uh, my original area of expertise. I did my dissertation research on the War of 1812, so a set of circumstances that was very different from the early days of World War II. But I'm fascinated by military history and naval history generally, and I'm, I'm certainly fascinated by the story of Dunkirk. It's one not a lot of people are familiar with. And so I'm glad to see Hollywood finally take notice of it. It seems like the sort of movie or the sort of story that should have been made into a movie a dozen times over by now. Um, but it finally gets its day on, on the big screen and uh, in really impressive fashion. I was actually a big fan of the movie. And so I look forward to being able to analyze it a little bit and talk about uh, some of the themes and some of what this movie is trying to say. And I am also here with... Deputy Editor of Providence, Mark Melton, who can introduce himself. Hey, uh, my name is Mark Melton. I'm, as Levecki said, the Deputy Editor for Providence. I'm also the uh, normal host for the Foreign Policy Provcast, for those who listen to that. I'm usually the uh, wingman for that at best, or the interview subject, but now I am at the helm. So uh, we're making this up as we go along. But we are here to talk about Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. It is a story about the incredibly unlikely, if not miraculous, rescue of about 400,000 British, French, and Belgian troops uh, after being surrounded by the Germans at, the, uh, at Dunkirk in France. Uh, but to give us some sense of the historic context, we're going to refer to our naval historian. Tommy, uh, setting up the historic context, May 1940, Blitzkrieg enters the global lexicon. Say more. Well, it really is a, a dark, dark hour for Britain and for all of Europe, frankly. The Nazis have just swept through Belgium and France. They've driven the armies that were sent to oppose them to the edge of the English Channel. They have them surrounded. It's a moment where, despite Churchill's leadership, despite the rousing speeches, despite the determination of the British people, it is a very real possibility that uh, Britain could be knocked out of the war and Hitler could have uncontested control of all of Europe. So a bleak time, a, uh, a time of very real crisis, but also a moment as this movie depicts in which Britain has its chance to shine and the British people have their chance to rally in the face of the crisis and to live to fight another day. And so in that sense, it's a story about a defeat that was in, turned into a victory. Okay, Tommy's job is to be something of a proselytizer, I think, because uh, Melton and I think were generally underwhelmed by the film. It's not to say that either of us thought the film was bad, uh, but underwhelmed. Melton, why are you such an unbeliever? I wouldn't say I'm an unbeliever. I would say there has been so many people who love the movie, and uh, I kind of draw that back a little bit where I enjoyed it. But if I was making the movie, I would have done a few things different. There are certain things that I like about other movies that I did not see in this particular movie. For instance, in Hacksaw Ridge, there's a lot of good character development. There's a lot of good personalities. In this movie, you don't have that. Now, granted, Christopher Nolan was trying to do a completely different type of movie, so I recognize it and respect it as a great piece of art. So in this movie, there's not a lot of 
character development. There is a lot of different people there, but they all kind of mesh together. I get kind of confused at times <laughs> as far as which one actually right. just died. Right. And the only ones, for instance, the ones on the boat going back and forth, I kind of get their personality. I get uh, Murphy's, um, the actor from Peaky Blinders. I kind of understand who he is, but a lot of times I don't necessarily see that. I know, that's right. This was part of my impression. I felt like such a racist. I'm watching all these Englishmen, and I couldn't tell any of them apart. They all looked alike to me. Uh, they all came from boy bands or something, right? Now, Tommy, uh, Melton's comment to Biggie Pack on the comment about the lack of character development. Uh, when we were talking earlier, you touched on this. It wasn't so much that there were characters in the film, but that there were types. Can you say more about that and what you meant? Well, it's interesting that you bring up Hacksaw Ridge, another great war movie that, to my mind, doesn't get enough credit. But it's a movie that's trying to do something very different. So in Hacksaw Ridge, you have the most atypical character imaginable in a lot of ways. Uh, you've got a pacifist, someone who is opposed to violence that is on the front lines of combat. Uh, and you have in Hacksaw Ridge and in several other war movies, as you mentioned, these really well-developed characters where you know their backstory, you know their experiences, you know their thoughts and feelings that they bring with them into combat. And you see how combat and how the experience of war and the experience of military service shapes them as individuals and shapes their outlook on life. Dunkirk is the opposite story. Dunkirk is focused on, on the set of events. It's focused very specifically on the Battle of Dunkirk, the evacuation of Dunkirk. And so we don't know much of anything at all about these characters other than the immediate circumstances they find themselves in. But in that way, I think they're able to stand in for the larger story. You can't tell the story of all 400,000 soldiers on the beach. So you have one, one soldier named Tommy, which is uh, his first name, but also it's a term for British soldiers generally. You have the, uh, the pilots in the air overhead. You have the civilians bringing their boats across the English Channel to participate in the evacuation. And so you see these characters. There is some character development. There is some evolution over the course of the movie. You do get to know them a little bit. But in a larger sense, they are standing in for the entire population of people who participated in this battle and who participated in this moment in history. And so it's a sense that it is very truly a movie about Dunkirk, not necessarily about someone at Dunkirk, but about Dunkirk the battle, about Dunkirk the moment in history. One thing that I do enjoy that the film did was show kind of the hopelessness in the, the, the dire situation here where these people are forced into this situation. They did not choose Dunkirk, I'm sure, as their port of choice because it is a very shallow port. And we see that several different times. For instance, there's a time when the medical ship is hit and they have to shove the ship out into the water so that it doesn't sink right next to the pier because otherwise they wouldn't be able to bring in these deep ships. In fact, the entire reason why they needed to bring in the fishing boats and the pleasure yachts and so forth into Dunkirk was because those are the only ships that could actually get close to shore. And so you have this situation where they're forced there by the German army while they are being pressed against the sea. And we see that, I mean, the entire movie is built around that. And 
I appreciated how that is part of the hopelessness that these people face, that they are shoved into this very dire situation. Right. So you're the, you're the British expeditionary force, or you're the French, you're the Belgians. You're lined up facing the Germans, blitzkrieg. You're pushed back to Dunkirk, and now you've got to try to evacuate 400,000 men from a port uniquely unsuited to trying to emergency evacuate 400,000 men. Bad day for the British, Tommy? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I uh, I don't know that you're going to find anyone to argue that point, say it was actually a good day for the British. It was pretty clear-cut disaster on all sides, uh, at least when the movie begins. And yet you use the word triumph. So if it was a defeat, where was the triumph? Well, the triumph of Dunkirk is in simply surviving. Uh, it's not victory, it's survival. It's the chance to live to fight another day. It's the chance to rally in the face of defeat and instead of surrendering, pressing on. I, I think in some ways the message of Dunkirk is, well, it's a reminder. You can't skip straight to D-Day. You can't skip straight to rolling over the enemy, triumphantly marching into the capital. Sometimes there are setbacks, sometimes there are outright disasters in warfare. And the great thing about Dunkirk is in the face of this colossal military disaster, Britain was able to rally, able to pull its army back together, pull its army uh, out of the jaws of total defeat and live to fight another day, live to carry on the war effort until such time as the, uh, the Soviet Union and the United States entered the conflict as well. And then they were able to topple the Nazi empire. But you never get to that point if you give up when your soldiers are trapped at Dunkirk. And so Dunkirk is not a triumph in the conventional sense. Dunkirk is a triumph of the will to endure. And I think that's the message of the event of Dunkirk. Certainly that is how you see it in Britain's historical memory. And that is very much the message of the film as we see at the end. I think this idea about the Dunkirk spirit is, is right. In, in, in a way, in terms of an interpretive device, it seems to me that the book is, or the film is bookended uh, with the, with this theme of survival. So in the beginning, you get this sort of stirring opening sequence where they're walking through a picturesque French town. You can see a group of maybe six soldiers uh, from behind and raining down like snow. Can, some, can snow rain down? Raining down like snow are uh, leaflets that have been dropped from an enemy fighter. One of the soldiers picks one up and looks at it and you get a close-up of it. And it's a a leaflet warning them that they are surrounded and commanding that they surrender or die. So that's the opening sequence. And then at the very end of the film, one of the closing sequences is they're on the train, they're safe at home now, and one of the soldiers acquires a newspaper and it begins to read out loud the peroration to Winston Churchill's on the beach speech, uh, you know, where he gives his famous sort of, you know, we will never surrender uh, speech. And a peroration in, in sort of classic rhetoric is the concluding summary statement that brings everything to an emotional climax. And you can interpret the speech through that peroration. Uh, if that's the case, then can you interpret the film through this idea of the Dunkirk spirit? I think Dunkirk spirit is actually a great way to describe it. And uh, of course, I'm not British, so I'm not sure how qualified I am to speak to this. But 
I do get the sense that Dunkirk is a very telling moment in the British people's sense of themselves and sense of their place in history and sense of the role their nation has played in history. And so I think that's a great term for it. And I think that's a great term for the theme of this movie and what this movie is trying to say. The Skipper, the Mark Rieland's character, uh, if there's a moral center to the film, I wonder if he's not it. He's the, the moral core. Uh, he's the civilian who, who, you know, can offer his boat to the Navy, and they will take the boat over. You had said earlier that actually, you know, the Navy requisitioned a lot of the boats and manned them themselves. Uh, some civilians took their own boats. He seems to do that. Mark Melton's comment was, you know, perhaps he felt called to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he goes. Not only is he sort of, you know, showing his own son, sort of British duty, implacable resolve, courage under fire, order within disorder, all the sort of the chief British sort of virtues uh, on display here. But he also has several back and forths with the... Uh, Cillian Murphy. Cillian character. Murphy. They find him you know, on a, on a wrecked ship. They bring him aboard. He's obviously suffering some dimension of post-traumatic stress. Finds out that they're actually going the wrong direction <laughs> and creates quite a bit of havoc. But the Mark Rieland's character has this great phrase that was in the trailers and is in, in the film... And, I'm, and now I'm going to come up empty on it. But uh, there's no getting away from this. There's sun. no hiding from this. There's sun. no hiding from this. We sun. have a job to do. We have a job to do, right? Yes. Boom. There's your tagline. Yeah? Absolutely. Well, Mark Relance, uh, his, and again, one of the interesting things about the movie, there's so little dialogue mm. that you identify the characters by either the actor playing them or the types because it's so hard to remember people's names. It's only mentioned in passing, if at all. And so Mark Relance's character does have a name. I just am not sure what it is exactly. But he is the embodiment of virtue in the film. He is everything that the British people became in this moment of crisis at their best. Um, It is not a movie of unvarnished heroism uh it is a movie where you see the full spectrum of man's character in the midst of a crisis you see how facing this life and death situation can peel away the facade and show the true character underneath and so it is a movie where you see cowardice you see selfishness you see really some of the more unattractive qualities of people and yet you also see mercy you see incredible courage and you see a will to endure and you see some folks move from moments of cowardice into moments of heroism yes right so it's not black and white types like people are complex yes well and people can rise up to the challenge people can grow in the midst of a crisis as well as well for me my favorite part of the movie is all the scenes with the fishing boat yeah, going actually it's not a fishing boat it's a it is, pleasure yeah, that's right it's a boat, boat yacht, like a yacht or something yeah. right so going back to France and and like in Murphy's uh, character's case it's hopelessness for him like mm-hmm. he's being thrown by fate back and forth by providence whatever right. um and uh, I'd say providence good yeah providence sure. yeah. yeah um we don't want to throw the fate in there a little too no. pagan um <laughs> the so driven by providence for us yeah yeah absolutely so try to say it three or four times okay i'll try so he's being thrown back into the shores of france by providence by providence yes so and he definitely does not want to go right and that's i think that adds that extra layer where the soldiers on the beach don't want to be there like they and it just adds that tension and that again anxiety um and i 
I think it's good. Like you're talking about the idea how um, these characters are not all uh, paragons. Is that the right word? These mm -hmm. ideas sure. they are perfect superheroes. They have some grit to them, and they also have some flaws. And uh, I think there's a risk sometimes when you make movies like this. It becomes almost propagandist, sure. where it yeah, is right. too. Uh, you know, heroic. But the fact that you add the layers of fear, the layers of anxiety, the layers of don't take me back here, I really don't want to go. Mm -hmm. And yet they still have to go. Like, I think that adds to uh, the realism. Yeah, that's and right. People are like ogres. They have layers. Right. Right? Like ogres, you said? Like ogres. Come on. Hey, Alexa. Right, man. Shrek. Thank yeah. you, Tommy. There you yeah. go. Yeah. I mean, like I, ogres. Uh, Got to make movie references in a film review website. Right? This is the only podcast about Dunkirk where Shrek will come up. So it's guaranteed. You know, That's beautiful. Unless yeah. you talk about this yeah. podcast. That's right. <laughs> no, you're right. My Slovak friends, they lived in Slovakia for 12 years. My Slovak friends, I'm sure, if I was in Slovakia right now, they would tell me this is not a film made by an American, which is a little bit of a slander. Uh, but their point would be an American war film is all about, you know, it's Rambo. You know, the, like you said, the paragon of virtue, of martial valor. Here, no. It's more complex than that. Do you think that's still true? I think, are there other war movies? Or, like, even just, I'm thinking, like, some of the superhero movies where right. you see some of their deeper layers. Yeah, like that's why I think it's... Like, Iron Man is right. not, not exactly... True. Perfect. Yeah, I don't want my kids, if I was to have kids, to be acting like Iron Man. Right. <laughs> true. No, yeah. No, I think that's right. Well, I think in some ways, by showing the uglier side of human nature, it highlights... Mm -hmm the good that happens in the movie more. You see uh, Mark Rylance's nobility and his courage right. in starker focus mm -hmm. by also seeing Cillian Murphy uh, giving in to his fear in the process. Mm -hmm. No, that's right. You know, this notion of uh, sort of stoic duty, uh, another great war film, uh, Gladiator, uh, mm -hmm. Ridley Scott, Russell Crowe. Uh, there's this the scene where Russell Crowe uh, asks his uh, squire slave, I'm not quite sure what the guy is, but asks him, you know, do you sometimes find it hard to do your duty? And the guy says, oh, sometimes I do what I want, other times I do what I must, right? Nobody wants to be on the beach, <laughs> ferrying the men off the beach, uh, but they rise to the occasion and they do it. So in that sense then, so my earlier comment that this film is about the Dunkirk spirit, okay, that's true, but the Mark Raylance character had this spirit well before Dunkirk, right? So he's acquired it somewhere, so this is an old British virtue, this idea that's that's magnified, perhaps, at Dunkirk. Uh, but this is what gets this island nation through, uh, you know, everything from, you know, World War II to Brexit to whatever else. One of the things that I wonder about with his this character is, and it's not mentioned at all, but, you know, World War One. how many of the older characters would have served yeah, in right. World War One, and that how could that have informed that? No, that's a great question. I mean, Mark Rielands would have been the right age for all that. Depending on... Uh, presumably. Yeah, presumably. He could have done yeah. something. Yeah. No, or right. if he didn't, then he would have seen other people who would have done that, too. Yeah, right. No, that's right. There was a question earlier about historical aspects of the film, and I sometimes discover that I'm by nature a cynical and suspicious person. And when I go to war films, I'm always ready for this not to really be a war film, but it's an anti-war film, dressed up as a war film, uh, or a film that is going to be about a patriotic moment in history, really not actually being about patriotism. It's going to be, be anti-patriotic, right? Because this is what 
sort of liberal Hollywood or liberal filmmakers might do. So I'm always on guard. Uh, so as I'm watching this film, you know, the, the defenses are up. And there were several things that I found perplexing. I wasn't sure why they were there. And we talked about them earlier, and you had some good uh, alternative reads on these various things. I think there were three of them. The first was, uh, and this I'm going to qualify by saying that wars in history often become wars of history, where we don't even agree on the historic facts. So that's the qualification. But one historian argued that it was inaccurate in the film to depict... There's a scene early on where a bunch of, where maybe one, or several British soldiers are pushing some French soldiers, I think, off the mole, saying this is a British ship, friendship will be by later, you know, you wait till the British go through. And there's a suggestion at the end of the film, okay, where Kenneth Branagh is going to stay, because, well, we've got the Brits off, now we're going to get the French off. And so this idea that the British didn't allow any French to escape Dunkirk until after the Brits were off, and this historian's counter was, that's just not true. Whenever the, the French and the Belgians made it to the beach, um, they were taken off on British ships to England, uh, interwoven in with the regular British troops. So his frustration was that he didn't know why there was this sort of anti-nationalist uh, moment depicted in the film when actually this is just a throwback to Vichy France and the Vichy government made this myth about this... Um, English betrayal of the French in order to create you know, anti-Anglo sentiment and sort of pro-German sentiment. Point one. So my question for this would be, why was that in there? But let me get all three out and let you just re respond to all three at once. The sure. second was when they disembark from the boats in England, you see, I don't know the character's name, but one of the British Spitfire pilots who was shot down. He was actively participating in the rescue. He's shot down. He makes it onto a boat he disembarks in London with everybody else, or in England with everybody else, and one soldier kind of grabs him on the on the pier and says, where were you? You know, where were you, the Air Force? Right. Misunderstanding completely that this guy was in the thick of it, and the Mark Reelands character says, oh, we know where you were, son, it's all okay. So, point two, like, why is that in there in, in this movie about Dunkirk? And then the third point, very end, you have this old man giving away blankets on the pier, and one guy takes the blanket and he gets under the train, but then he grumbles. He says, that old man didn't even look at us. And it turns out that they make a point of showing you the old man is blind. And so why this bizarre sort of misunderstanding and this sort of bratty kind of, eh, he wasn't even looking at us. So you got these three moments where here I am with my suspicious self thinking, ah, what's, what's his real agenda here? And I don't know what to do with these three sequences. Why are they there? You have good explanations. Well, I think the first two are separate from the third one. So the first two are, uh, as my understanding, are very historically accurate. And so I've spoken to a couple of other scholars of World War II who say that, yes, British troops telling the French, you get to the back of the line, these are British ships, they should be evacuating the British soldiers, was accurate. So wars um, in history becoming wars of history. And we had sure. said even earlier that even if it was an official policy, would it be ridiculous to assume that a British soldier might have told a French soldier, you're not getting on until my buddies are off. That right. could have happened. Right. right. I don't know about, I can't speak yeah, to the official right. policy of it right. all. I know that there are at least World War II scholars that I've spoken to have said there were some tensions in that regard. And I think that simply goes back to this theme of the movie of crisis and catastrophe exposing character. Sure. But yes, that is historically accurate. 
the complaining about where's the Air Force, and there's the scene at the end, but there's also at the beginning uh, a soldier screaming, where's the bloody Air Force, right. while they're being straight. So we're going to have to beat that German. out, right? Right, right. Because that that's actually, like a re that's the B word. <laughs> yeah, that's the B word. Okay, well, you know, <laughs> sorry, sorry we'll, we'll, for okay. tainting. We'll, we can your... put a warning in. Yeah, we'll, 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 like, we'll, we'll have a trigger warning on this. Right. Joseph, write that down. Trigger warning, please. This is a very PG podcast here. What can I say? That's yeah, okay. It's, you know, <laughs> he, he, he's an old salty historian, so that's what happens. There you go. There you go. The naval historians usually are. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know, just uh, just tainted by all these brutal war movies here. Um, but yes, so where's the bloody Air right. Force? He says. Right. So to pause there, these are there because these are things that happened. And just like there were acts of cowardice, these things happened. Sure. Well, and I think the the Air Force problem is the planes are so high up and also it, I mean, it's a beach big enough for 400,000 men. And there were a lot of British soldiers who never saw the Air Force and very understandably were frustrated by this and saying, why isn't the Air Force helping us out? And so I think these are two details that... I don't know that you need to look for a hidden agenda right. there. You, the, the purpose of this movie is, as I think we've mentioned before, it's to tell the story of Dunkirk and to tell the experience of Dunkirk. And telling the experience as much as the story. And the experience of Dunkirk was seeing these tensions between British and French soldiers and was seeing these frustrations of where is the Air Force. The scene at the end where the uh, Tommy's friend is complaining... The old man wouldn't even look at us. I think that is a larger depiction of that character and seeing him in the aftermath. He, uh, at one point, uh, as he's coming off of the boat in England and he's gotten home, someone says to him, well done, lads, well done. Right. Yeah, the same guy. And, and he looks right. at him and he says, all we did was survive. Mm -hmm. And the man tells him, that's enough. Right. But you can tell in his mind it's not enough. Mm -hmm. He feels this profound sense of failure. Because right. Well, you pointed out something that, that I didn't catch in my viewing. He says something to one of the men on the boat. What's he say? He says, we really let you guys down, didn't we? Or we really let you blokes down, didn't right. we? Uh, and he actually says that to Mark Rylance. Uh. We, we failed. And he feels this sense of failure all the way up to the train. And they get on the train to go home after they've reached England. And as, he's, as he is dealing with these emotions and you know, one sidebar here and one thing that is really impressive about this movie is there is so little dialogue and so much of the story is told on the characters faces without saying a word mm -hmm. and you really see that on his face until he hears someone pounding on the window of the train and he looks and civilians have have rallied around the train and they're cheering and they're they're passing bottles i guess it's a beer or yeah. a, a soda yeah. of some kind through and handing them to the soldiers and it's this really triumphant moment where the flip switches on this guy's emotions and he realizes, no, we're not failures, we're heroes right. to the people of England because we survived and because we've come back. And therefore, England is going to be able to fight again. England is going to survive to fight another day because we made it home. And in the midst of this, you get the other soldier sitting across from him reading Churchill's famous speech. And, it puts it all in the, context. Phenomenal defeat you know, terrible military disaster, and we will s survive. Never surrender. Never right. surrender. And it ends on a very triumphant note. And there's another moment where cutting into, it's a bleak movie overall, I mean, let's be honest, but then cutting into that, you have the, the British officer, the British naval officer who's been supervising all of this, and he says repeatedly, you can almost see home. 
You can look across the English Channel, and if you squint, you can almost see home, and it's so close and so far away. And then at one moment, he, as the small boats are coming in, as all these civilian craft are crossing the channel to get the soldiers and to do the evacuation, he looks through his binoculars, and he's, here's this stoic British naval officer, but you can see the tears welling up in his eyes. And the army officer comes up to him and asks, what is it? And he says, it's home. Hmm. But he's not saying it's home across the channel. Home has right. come to them. That's right. And so it is, it is a bleak movie. It is a harsh movie. But it is a movie that ultimately speaks to triumph and speaks to overcoming. And I, it, it is in no sense an anti-war movie. It is right. a very celebratory movie of the British spirit in World War II. And we keep going back to that phrase, the British spirit. But in some ways... The star of the movie is the British spirit. Oh, right. It's an ensemble cast, but the mm -hmm. central character is Britain and Britain's ability to survive. Yeah, that's well said. Melton, closing thoughts? You were talking earlier about the, uh, the catastrophe of Dunkirk and the setbacks and how I don't know who exactly said this, but a quote of how war is a series of catastrophes that ends in a victory for someone. And... <laughs> I think it's a good reminder because in the West we have such, you know, military superiority on so many different levels. We haven't had a setback where we've almost lost four hundred thousand soldiers on like one beach. Now we've you know lost many, um, and we've had you know smaller defeats, but we haven't had an experience like this in decades. And so I think it's a good reminder that when we go to war when we need to go to war, there will be moments where stuff like this can happen. I'm not fatalistic in the sense that, you know, people can say, oh, Americans can't handle this today, or the Western civilization can't handle this. I think we can handle it when the time comes. And uh, in that moment, like, I, I'm pretty sure Brits, you know, 10 years before this, I don't know if they would have said, oh, we could have handled this. But when the moment comes, I think people can, but I think it's a good reminder that when you pull the trigger to say we're going to war, to be realistic about what can happen. And, and I think about like the possibilities of war, like we, you know, North Korea, China, Russia, it can get catastrophic, but it's a good reminder to recognize the full cost so that you're not surprised later on when you must make that decision. Oh, yeah, that's right. I think, uh, you know, in terms of lessons learned, you know, one of the things I take away from the film Dunkirk is could be encapsulated maybe in the phrase, defeat sucks. And so not only ought you to be prepared to be able to endure it if necessary, uh, and to try to pull a triumph, not a victory out of it, but a triumph out of it, uh, but at the same time, build a substantial enough military that you make defeat as unlikely as possible. Because when you pull the trigger, that's not the time to develop a military budget sufficient for the day. Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. Right? And, and, yes. And I think something that um, speaks to the reason why some people on the Hill and other parts of this town are calling for a bigger Navy mm. so that if we have to go to war with China, we can actually withstand a defeat and not have to surrender. And if we actually had a bigger Navy, then we could actually have a better deterrence where we might actually need to use it or we could use it.
And I think it's important to recognize in this movie that just because you have a defeat, just because you have a catastrophe, doesn't mean you're going to lose the war. Right. Right. And actually, I was talking to someone earlier this weekend about the movie, and I compared it to the Alamo movie that came out 10 or so years ago. And I think, you know, of course, the Alamo was a defeat. And then that movie, it ends with the Battle of uh, San Jacinto. This movie doesn't end like that. It ends with the speech and this rousing thing. And so, like, we know there's a victory later on. Um, and so I thought that was kind of an interesting mm-hmm. comparison between sure. those two movies of a, a movie about defeat, but ultimate victory. We had talked before uh, we sat down here about some of the the alternative applications to this movie about Dunkirk, how the English-British behaved in Dunkirk, uh, but that movies often operate at different levels. And while this was about... Dunkirk and never surrendering. This could also be about uh, never surrendering in the face of Islamic terrorism, uh, in the face of any of the innumerable threats that face modern-day Britain, modern-day West. As a naval historian, give you the last word. Uh, what are the military takeaways? What do you take away? We've talked about military budgets, but is there anything else? What do we put in our rock as we leave Dunkirk? Well, I think the the military lesson of Dunkirk is... War is hard. And Mark, you've already kind of touched on all of this. War is hard and there are setbacks. And you have to be willing to press on in the in the face of sometimes very serious setbacks. And I think also the message of Dunkirk is war is not necessarily something that can only be fought by the army. Mm. Sometimes war does touch on the civilian realm and as a society as a whole. That's right. You need to be willing to do what it takes to achieve victory and certainly do what it takes to support those in uniform who are doing the fighting uh, and to make sure they have the resources that they need to accomplish the victory that you're sending them out to win. And so I think there is a a pro-military aspect to this, but also pro-military and that support the troops sometimes means more than saying support the troops. It means actually enduring discomfort and even risk to contribute your own part to achieving victory. And I think that is an important message to take away from this film and uh, an important message to take away from the event at Dunkirk, which hopefully the publicity from this movie will lead more people to go and read about and learn about because it is a pivotal moment in Western history and it's a moment well worth celebrating. Brilliant. You're making me a believer. (laughs) There it is. Uh, Very good. Well, thank you for uh, being a guinea pig in the inaugural Dark Ops Provcast, podcast where Providence goes to the movies. Thank you for listening to all of this, and also thanks for coming in and uh, speaking with us. And also, make certain to go to our website, providencemag.com. You can also subscribe there to our print edition. It is only $28 a year, so that kind of helps us keep going. So you'll see a link to that on the homepage, but you'll also see a donate section so that if you feel like giving more than $28, you are more than welcome to do so. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Prov Magazine. So it's ProvidenceMag.com, at Prov Magazine for Twitter. And also follow us on Facebook. Very good. Thank you, Mel. Thank you, Tommy, for coming in. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Joseph, for the tech work.